other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is uh, Leonard Skinner. We saw the news yesterday that uh, Gary Rossington, the guitarist for Leonard Skinner, and I believe the last original member of that band, had uh, passed away. Well, if you turn on cable news, if you turn on the radio, if you read quotes in any sort of publication, any newspaper, any magazine, chances are you're going to stumble upon a quote or two from a retired general. The overwhelming number of retired generals, all of whom are highly decorated, have uh, incredible resumes, both in terms of the military theater of combat and many times in academia, have led people, have fought, and have been very brave. So often, these generals end up sounding very much like General Jack Keane, retired four-star general who was on uh, Fox Business a couple of weeks ago talking about the situation in Ukraine. What the Ukrainians are saying, and I'm associated with the Institute of the Study of War, and we validate what the Ukrainians are saying. If you give them everything that they've requested in a timely manner, they can win this war decisively within a year. And, and that's just the facts in front of us. I find that kind of comments, that kind of commentary, so incredibly dangerous, honestly. But I never served in the military. Who am I to question somebody with the kind of service of General Jack Keane? And I think a lot of us are tempted to sort of defer to the experts. A lot of us are tempted to say, look, He's a general. He's been in combat. He must know what he's talking about. How can I question it? Well, a fascinating column uh, that I'm going to link to on my Facebook page right now at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan says, don't let retired generals drag America into the Ukraine war. Its author is not a general, but a retired U.S. Army colonel who has deployments in four combat zones. He's currently a senior fellow and military expert for defense priorities. One of our favorites, Colonel Daniel Davis. Colonel, it is always great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio. Frank, it is absolutely a delight to be back. It's been a long time. How it, are you? It is. It has been far too long. You're you're a busy guy, but uh, I guess that's good that people are taking advantage of your uh, your expertise. Hey, uh, so Colonel, what's your problem? Uh, what kind of anti patriot are you to be questioning the wisdom <laughs> of people like General Jack Keane? Yeah, you know that's, uh, that's I get that a lot actually uh, because to, you know often people will look at the ranks and they'll say, okay, a lieutenant colonel. Or four star general. Well, I'm going to go with the four star general. And, you know, a certain extent, I can understand why they might be thinking that. But what I really tried to lay out in that piece that I wrote there that you referred to, as well as several others that are also linked within it, is that we need to be looking at the results of what these guys say over, over decades of time. We're not talking about that they missed something here or there 
or that they're, you know, there was kind of like, well, I think it was red. He thinks it was blue. Uh, you know, who knows which is the best. I'm talking about like dramatic failures and, and uh, bad advice given to presidents, bad advice given to the American people, to Congress, things that ended disastrously. If you look at the track record of these fellows over at least the last 20 years, uh, then you'll see that you very much should be questioning the advice that they're given now, and especially something like that one of uh, General Keene that you just mentioned there. I mean, I mean, that's just nonsense to suggest that all we have to do is give a bunch of tanks and artillery pieces and uh, you know armored personnel carriers, and then bam, Ukraine's going to be able to win the war. I, I mean, that that doesn't make any sense if you understand how combat power is built how effective units are designed and how they're built over time, what it takes to get a unit uh, a combat effective in modern uh, mechanized warfare, and then to suggest that you just got to give them NATO stuff and they'll suddenly be able to act like NATO, and then as though the Russian side doesn't even exist. I mean, there's, it's just you can't substantiate what he said. Uh, and in fact, what we're going to probably end up doing is just extending the war uh, probably right. making more Ukrainians die, and, and it's still not going to end that way. Right. Yeah, and that's anyway. why I, I have a big problem when people have characterized my position, which is generally that the United States should try to play a role not in helping the Ukrainians but in helping bring an end to this conflict. I have a big problem with people who've characterized the things that I've said as being anti-Ukraine or pro-Russian. I don't think there's anything anti-Ukraine about wanting uh, fewer Ukrainians to be killed, which is uh, unfortunately the logical consequence of the the policy that we're pursuing now. Now, General Keene is not alone. You have former Central Command General David Petraeus led uh, the military in both Iraq and Afghanistan and then went on to become the head of the CIA. He believed, recently he said that he believed Ukraine would retake the territory that Russia has seized, including potentially Crimea and the Donbass, which threw me for quite a loop. Uh, General Petraeus certainly has a lot of experience, Colonel. Why is he wrong? Yeah, and, and I believe it was General Clark uh, who, who echoed the same thing. And General uh, Hodges, General Ben Hodges, said that he thinks that Ukraine will take Crimea by this summer. Uh, and, and, you know, again, you hear generals say that, and you think, like you said at the outset here, well, they must know what they're talking about, so I guess it's true. But the fact is that it's not true at all, and, and I, I genuinely don't understand why they would be saying these things when it's just basic fundamentals that they're supposed to know like the back of their hand as to why what they're saying is just virtually impossible to accomplish, unless the Russians just disintegrated on their own. Uh, they have, you know, four times the potential manpower that the Ukraine does. They have their own dom uh, domestic military uh, construction of, of vehicles, uh, their own production of ammunition. They don't have to rely on other people to make it or to give it to them like the Ukraine side does, because the, the Russians have basically destroyed all the military industrial capacity of Ukraine. They severely damaged their uh, civilian infrastructure for electricity generation, which has a direct impact on their ability to uh, just even make their economy work, much less other you know, military uh, facilities to function. All those things make it so that the, the much smaller Ukrainian army and the smaller manpower pool they have is over by the up to 15 million more Russian troops or 
personnel in the military age male uh, pool from which to draw. So you can see if you get into a a, uh, uh, a situation where it's a uh, you know we're just doing a meat grinder kind of attrition warfare model, which is kind of what the thing is doing at the moment. That doesn't favor Ukraine, and Russia is not just going to disappear. They have a force somewhere around 150,000 that has yet to be employed. That, uh, according to all the Western intelligence services, has somewhere between 1,800 tanks, about 4,000 armored personnel carriers, and uh, I, I don't know, seven, seven, eight hundred artillery pieces that haven't even been used yet. So they're sitting over there waiting somewhere. And to suggest that the Ukraine side, who won't even be getting any of this NATO gear that we promised them until probably the end of the summer at the earliest, and in the, even that's only part of it, that that's somehow going to be able to drive through this Russian force, it, it just doesn't make any sense when you look at the fundamentals. The uh, One of the generals that you quote is uh, General Mark Hurtling, who wrote in the Washington Post in an op-ed recently that Ukraine, quote, will win the war. Uh, he said unequivocally and definitively because Russia won't make the changes necessary to win simply because it can't. Respond to General Hurtling. Why is he wrong? Yeah, that, uh, if you were reading all the rest of his commentary there, that's, that's a, a pretty racist statement, frankly. Right. Because he is saying that the Russian culture, the Russian uh, historical nation is not capable. Like they're they're just – you know, some kind of dumb guys. And look, you can hate the Russians. You can strongly dislike them. But it is a classic military error to underestimate your opponent. Now, I would suggest that a lot of people overestimated Russia at the beginning. I have to put myself in that category. Uh, I, I was not aware of just how how much uh, Potemkin Village kind of dressing they put on the training that they did. But they have recovered from a lot of that. And now that you look historically at what they have done in the past, and I think I even mentioned in that article there that when pressed, you know, the Russian history uh, have, has beaten the Napoleonic armies. They d- defeated the, the uh, Germans in World War II. I mean, they can muster the power when it comes time to, uh, you know, if they feel that they're threatened. And they definitely are in that category now. And to just, you know, categorically say that they're not going to rise to the occasion again and just assume that that's the case is just setting yourself up for potential failure. We're talking with Colonel Daniel Davis. If you want to read this column, I've linked to it on my Facebook page. You can read it at facebook.com slash Fan. Definitely work, worth reading. Now, let me ask you this, Colonel. Uh, General Petraeus, General Clark, General Hurtling, these are not uh, – General Keene. These are not only experienced people, but they're very intelligent people. They can add two and two. Uh, many of them have uh, taught at uh, uh, military institutions of higher learning and elsewhere – why would they be making these sort of definitive claims, which are which seem so far fetched? You know, I, I I I'm puzzled by that. I really don't know. But but again, as I as I pointed out earlier, you look at the track record, and this has been going on for decades. They have been saying these kinds of things. How many times did David Petraeus stand there in sworn testimony before the United States Congress and say, we're winning the war. We are making progress. General Allen said, this is victory. We have won in 2013. Yeah, how did all that work out? All these generals, every single one of them went before the American people, told the presidents of the United States, this is going to work. We, uh, it is working. We're going to succeed. And then the predictable, which I've called as far back as 2009, that we were going to lose the war if we didn't make changes, 
it worked out exactly the way that I suggested it would for the reasons that I pointed out. And I don't know why these generals would be saying all this stuff to the contrary. The only thing that I can come up with is that, uh, you know, oftentimes they get into this uh, information operations mindset where if you just say it enough, people might start believing it and will influence this, you know, the target population. So we'll say what we want to be true, and then maybe it will become true. Some of them actually believe that, and you can certainly imagine that based on what they've said in the past under circumstances where we knew the military situation didn't line up with their claims, that they must be trying to do something like that now because of just a cold calculation of the military balance between the two forces right now it's overwhelmingly says Russia has the advantage. And I, I don't know why they keep saying the opposite. I'm not questioning the the integrity of any of the generals that we uh, that we have alluded to uh, so far. But the fact of the matter is, and this has been publicly documented, there are many generals that are more retired generals that are on television giving commentary that then go on to lucrative positions on the boards of military defense contractors. General Mattis, the former secretary of defense in the Trump administration, he's now paid $127,000 to serve on the board of General Dynamics. Uh, General Mark Welsh, a former Air Force chief of staff, who played a major role in growing the drone pilot program. He was elected to the board of uh, Northrop Grunman just after he retired, where he's paid $300,000 a year. Um, another, uh, Jack Keane, who was has been making the rounds to uh, comment on anything. He's a former board member at General Dynamics, where he was paid $257,000. General Bruce Carson, uh, Admiral James Winfield, the list goes on and on of these generals that are getting paid Big money by military defense contractors who are making millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars from this conflict continuing. And then these generals are going on television advocating for greater U.S. military involvement. Uh, Without being disrespectful, Colonel, do you think their private sector uh, economy has any role in uh, their influencing their outlook of the situation? You know, I, I, I think I'm kind of in agreement with you that I doubt, maybe there's some exceptions, but I doubt that any of these guys consciously think, okay, I know that I can look on the ground, I can read a map, I can, I can read a, a, a balance sheet, I can see that the Russian side is going to end up on top of this, but I'm going to say that the Ukraine side will so that my company can, you know, get more missile contracts or something. I bet none of them do that. But what I can absolutely see, and I know this happens all the time, is that because you're on the payroll of these kind of companies, and of course they will say with a straight face, with through all of their uh, the many uh, uh, people that they give money to for congressmen, with their uh, lobbying people that they have, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year as the industry, that they'll say, look, this is for our national security. We have got to do this. We cannot let those Russians win because. My God, they'll be knocking at the door of NATO in the next if we don't stop them here. So this is something we have to do. So you can convince yourself that, yeah, that's right. We have to do this. We can't take the risk. And so you're going to naturally benefit from it because you're in that company and you know their product. You know it's really good. So you'll talk yourself into believing that this is really a patriotic thing to do. But when you're, ben- when you're influenced you know, subtly like that, by the message of the company and the fact that it's a business and they want to make money and they're giving you lots of money for your reputation and your credibility, 
that you're, it's just almost impossible to give unbiased advice. One of the explain to folks why uh, an escalation is not in the best interests of the United States. Why should the United States uh, avoid f- getting further involved in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine? What do we what do we have to lose by that? The absolute best case for the United States right now is for this war to end as fast as possible. Because uh, and and I, I am strongly motivated, as you talked about at the outset here by the number of Ukrainian citizens, both military and civilians, and frankly, even the Russian military personnel that are being killed pointlessly because Zelensky and Putin can't come to an agreement. Those guys are paying all the price in this. The longer this thing goes, the more cities in Ukraine are destroyed, the more people get Mm. killed, the more troops die for no gain, because this is going to end up in a negotiated settlement because they don't have the capacity to win. So the longer we do this, the more they're going to pay a price. It's not going to help the Ukrainian people. And the, the longer this goes, the greater the chance for any kind of error or miscalculation or bad decision that could expand this war. For example, the, the Russians have said if the West does provide these long-range missiles from ATACMS uh, and some of these other facilities, and they actually strike targets in Crimea or in Russia proper that come from NATO – they said, we are going to consider that as, as your direct participant in the war, and we will start hitting your arms depots in Poland, uh, in Romania, wherever they are that, that has, you know, they're sending stuff onward to kill Russian soldiers. That's going to be a fair target, and we're letting you know right now we'll hit that. Well, you know, if one target, one missile falls on Polish soil or on any NATO country, no matter the reason, their people are going to be ready to start talking about Article 5 and, you know, an unprovoked attack, et cetera. And you're going to be at the potential of a war with NATO and, and Russia. And, you know, that can only go one place. And that's that's a nuclear expansion. And the fact that we're even playing with that is just insanely dangerous. And, and one of the things I mentioned also in that article is that you have General Hodges telling people, I ah, don't worry about that. He'll never go nuclear. So literally, we can do anything and just don't worry about it. Yeah, it it is so interesting to me. I I get this with callers, too, is all of these people that want you to believe how evil Vladimir Putin is, they're essentially counting on Vladimir Putin to be a sane, sober, rational, nice guy uh, to not escalate things beyond the point of irrationality. But uh, I could talk with you about this all day. We've been talking with Daniel Davis. He's also the author of the book, The 11th Hour in 2020 America. It's a terrific book, which is actually more relevant now than it was in 2020. And now that we're going into a presidential election, I hope uh, the ideas that uh, that he puts out in this book influence the candidates on both sides of the aisle. Colonel, let me ask you this. You uh, served in Iraq and you gained some notoriety uh, when you returned from Afghanistan and published a, a report about how senior U.S. military and uh, civilian leaders were essentially misleading the public. This month is the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq. What do you think the legacy of that war is, and what are the key lessons that you think the American public should be learning from our involvement in that conflict that began 20 years ago? Man, I mean, the, the first one that jumps right off the page is that, that that was, you know, a classic war of choice. It was based on faulty uh, intelligence that we were lazy and didn't really vet to find out if it was accurate or not. And so we launched off in thinking that we're going to bring democracy to a country and a people that didn't really even want democracy. That, that They governed themselves in different ways and had for centuries. 
and, and uh, you know, to try and change them by, by destroying the government in place and then trying to bring one of our own choosing inside there was a complete disaster. And now then, 20 years later, we still have troops somewhere around 5,000, I believe, or 2,500 maybe now. But we still have a military presence in that country uh, because after just a short period of time, you know, their, their military faltered after we allegedly had trained them up to be independent. We claimed that they were, and then they disintegrated at the first contact. Uh, and so once you start something like this, there just doesn't seem to be any kind of an end. And, of course, we should do the same things as we did in Afghanistan and withdraw from it. But you see, we're still there today. And so why would we want to get involved in another war that's not something that's based on our national security, but just on something we want to do as a, quote, preventive war? And look how – what did that prevent? That prevented peace and has cost us dearly with thousands of lost, uh, tens of thousands of wounded hundreds of thousands of PTSD over the course of all this time. It's cost us like, I don't know how many trillions of dollars for that disastrous mistake. Let's don't repeat that in the future. Finally, sir, let me ask you this. A lot of people are concerned about uh, China, and even a lot of the people that have been calling shenanigans on the U.S. involvement in Ukraine, they seem to be all about uh, doubling down in terms of being hawks on, on China. A lot of Americans are concerned about what happens if China seeks to take Taiwan militarily. From your perspective, Colonel, what should the United States do if China moves against Taiwan in a military invasion of some sort? We should do everything that we can to to prevent that from happening by by engaging in diplomatic, uh, strong diplomacy, both with Beijing and Taipei, to say you guys need to find a way to not have this go into into conflict. That's that's the, the what we should be doing right now, and we're not doing either of those things. But if the conflict does in, in, explode, and, and, they, and no matter what the reason is that China does move militarily, the last thing that we should do is to go fight China on behalf of Taiwan, thinking that's going to help the situation. Because what that will do, and it was graphically uh, explained in the latest CSIS analysis of, of uh, war games where they did 24 iterations of it, every single one of them end up with us losing hundreds of aircraft, at least two aircraft carriers sunk in the bottom of the sea, tens of thousands of troops killed, and at the end of the day, maybe not even stop China from doing what they're going to try to do to take over Taiwan. What we should do instead is uh, let's basically blockade the place uh, you know, and let's use our military to make sure it doesn't go anywhere beyond the Taiwan area. Use our extraordinary, you know, potential for uh, uh, sanctions and other kinds of issues with economics that we can do with with Europe uh, to, you know, cause a great deal of pain to China, so that they have motivation to not continue on with this. Uh, and, and that may not stop them. They may be willing to pay that price. And that's that's the hard part of this. If they make the move. We may not be able to stop them, but what we can do is avoid destroying our own military by trying to stop them because their military has been built for decades specifically to react to the U.S. military trying to fight them in, on behalf of Taiwan. So they have you know, all the strength. They're fighting from 100 miles away from the border. We're fighting from about 6,000 miles away, and we just can't do that and succeed but we can have our, our Pacific fleets, air fleets, and water fleets gutted, and that would devastate our ability to 
uh, defend our nation and, and our global requirements because we would lose so much stuff it would take decades to replace. Colonel, so, no matter, we have to we have to avoid war at all costs with China. I, I appreciate the time, Colonel Daniel Davis. Uh, the book is the eleventh hour in twenty twenty America. If you want to read the column we've been talking about, don't let retired generals drag America into the Ukraine war. It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Colonel, it's always such a treat to talk with you. Thank you so much for staying up late with us. You bet. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. 